would be the result of our um, time this morning. We pray that you would give us wisdom regarding the books of the Old Testament we're looking at. Give me clarity and faithfulness in my teaching. Give us all alertness um, of mind and humility of heart as we learn and glorify your name as we more deeply engage with scriptures and see uh, the glories that you've revealed there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are continuing in our survey through the, the uh, second half of the Old Testament. Up to this point, we've done Psalms and Proverbs. Now we're doing uh, the rest of the wisdom books after uh, Job was last time we, the last series, did Proverbs last week. Now we're doing Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Uh, these are two books that, uh, let me just ask you, um, if you've read these books, what's something that you found difficult about one of them? Either one of those. Randy. How Solomon talks about trying this and trying that, and it's all useless. It's just a chasing after the wind. Yeah, this futility or uselessness that, that kind of Solomon discovers after a bunch of experiences. What do we do with that? What's he saying? It's a, that in Ecclesiastes, yeah. We're going to deal with that. That's a good thing to wrestle with. What's going on there? Yeah, that's a very central issue, so that's good. Any other things that are challenging about reading, interpreting, benefiting from these books? Yeah, Chin Wei. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Song of Songs, it, you know, how, how do we interpret it? How do we apply it? Is it referring to merely a human marriage? Is it referring to something greater, something more kind of on a spiritual level? That's a great question we're going to engage as well. Um, yeah, these are books, if you're, if, if you're like me, if we're honest, these are two books that are a little, little higher on the, you know, this is hard, like hard difficulty scale. If you are reading through the Bible and you hit one of these books, these aren't always books that we, um, we've, we have the easiest time understanding and benefiting from. Um, but what's something that you found helpful about one of these books in reading? Maybe you're hearing it preached or other ways you've engaged with it. Yeah, Gary. When I've read and I've, you know, I continually read Ecclesiastes, mm-hmm. but uh, the simplicity of the conclusion essentially in, in chapter 12, verse 13, and I have very simple, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Mm-hmm. And to me, I kind of, okay, that seventh Ecclesiastes for <laughs> yeah. ups and downs. Yes, yes. All I have to yes. do is do what So Ecclesiastes is this kind of long, windy journey. We don't always know exactly what's going on, but it lands in this place that we're very, we're very confident in what's being said there. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear the Lord, keep his commandments. Uh, this is uh, the duty of all mankind. God will bring every deed into judgment. And that's true. There is some, some helpfulness in sort of the solid ground that, that the book lands on. That's a good point. We're going to talk about that conclusion and how the rest of the book relates to it. That's a big question in Ecclesiastes. Good. Um, let's go ahead and start talking first about Ecclesiastes. So um, this is a book that uh, its main title comes from this word, the preacher, in verse 1. The Hebrew term is kohelet, and it means one who assembles. So the idea that the translators are inferring, it's like somebody who assembles a group to teach or preach to them. Um, and that's where we get this idea, the preacher. He's the speaker. He's the writer through most of this. It's traditionally ascribed to Solomon. It says in verse 1, he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, so that, that helps <laughs> narrow it down quite a bit. Sounds like Solomon. Uh, he says in verse 12 of chapter 1 that he was 
uh, king in Jerusalem, king over, all, uh, over Israel in Jerusalem. At the end of the book in chapter 12, verse 9, it says that he taught many proverbs. So we have a lot of, wow, this sounds a lot like Solomon. Uh, it seems most likely that he is who the preacher is. Uh, his reign, I'll remind you, is from eight, uh, B.C. 970 to 930, about a thousand years before Christ. Um, but if you do read carefully, you notice there's, there's two narrators, actually. So the beginning of the book speaks of the preacher in the third person. The preacher did this. Um, that's verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. Then in verse 12, it's I, the preacher. And it becomes first person, the preacher, all the way to the end of the book until the last part of chapter 12. In verses 9 to 14, again, we go back to the third person where there's like a narrator speaking about the preacher in the third person. So um, it's possible that somebody else wrote the book but used this main body of Solomonic material. Uh, and, and if that's the case, we don't know when that would have been. Some of the style and vocabulary people have pointed to is a lot later than Solomon. That's kind of hard to n- nail down. But it's very possible someone wrote this book using you know, preserved Solomon teaching, maybe using more uh, modern language in how they frame the whole thing with the introduction and conclusion. Um, so we don't really know. It's mainly, it seems mainly that it's Solomon talking. He's the preacher. He's the one writing the, the bulk of the book. Um, as he was the main author of Proverbs, and we're going to see he's the, the author of Song of Songs. Um, so as we get into the book, uh, as I said, it's challenging, and it contains some difficult statements that sometimes seem to contradict what other parts of Scripture teach. And the tone is also kind of dark and disillusioned. If you read it, it seems like, wow, this guy, this guy's a little, it's a little bleak. And so that can be hard. What do we do with this? So one of the big questions that we have to answer really at the front end to interpret the book is sort of what's going on here? Like what's, what's this book doing? And there's two major streams of thought in terms of like broad interpretation. One is what I'm calling the mostly wrong, meaning some people see the main body of Ecclesiastes as the preacher expressing his wrong view. And he's, so he's this guy, he's Solomon, or, or yeah, yeah, he's Solomon, let's just say. He's embittered by the disappointments of life. He's struggling to see any meaning. He says, vanity, vanity. We're going to talk about that in a moment, what that means. Uh, he's expressing this godless and nihilistic perspective on life. Nothing means anything. And then the last two verses that Gary read for us, we're back to the narrate, you know, kind of the third person narrator, is correcting Solomon. He's saying, well, all through his long, windy kind of dis- discourse by this disillusioned man, um, but I'm providing the correct perspective. It's almost like he's presented this and now he's saying, well, kids, let this be a lesson to you. Don't be like Solomon. Proponents of this view point to Job, right? Job, there's a lot of content in the body of Job that's wrong. It's in the lips of Job's friends who are debating about righteousness and wickedness and wisdom and folly. And we, ha- we, we, we understand based on the context that you don't just grab something someone says out of Job and say, this is true, right? Because the whole body of the, the book shows that a lot of what those guys said is wrong. That's maybe a parallel they would point to. The other major approach is right but limited. We're calling right but limited. So this sees the main body of Ecclesiastes as a different perspective that pulls intention against other biblical wisdom. Um, and so on this reading, the concluding two verses, everyone agrees those last two verses that Gary read are really important. It's like, this is the final conclusion after all this. And it's basically what the author is saying. So it's really important. 
This view sees as not as much, not as the author correcting what the rest of the book was doing, but um, giving the perspective in which it all makes sense. So this is like, how do we make sense of the struggle? Let's, let's kind of put this last piece of wisdom that sort of explains everything. In my judgment, this latter reading is better. That, that uh, rather than looking at you know, 90%, 95% of the book as what not to think, uh, it seems much more profitable to, and it seems like the, the first reading is a little too subtle. <laughs> um, it seems, and it seems to work out. And we're going to go through some of the themes and show how this works out. But to look through the book, just considering the tensions that the, the preacher is struggling with. And I said this last time, last week, that biblical wisdom is threads of truth that are woven together in this matrix of reality. And they're pulling against each other sometimes. They're not contradicting each other, but there's tension. There's different perspectives. And they're both true, but, but none is comprehensive. And so we have to, it takes prayerful meditation and discernment. How do we put this all together? But in putting it all together, we gain, like the sum total of all that is, is, is very beneficial. It's in kind of this, this, this dialogue between these two perspectives. Um, so I think this will become clear as we tease out some of the major themes in Ecclesiastes, um, which we'll do in a moment. But I want to stop and say, does anyone have any questions on, uh, or comments? Yeah, Christina. Would you say almost the same thing about Job in the sense that there is a lot of truth even in the body and the arguments Yes, that's a good point. Not not everything his friends say is wrong. Strictly, a lot of it's right, but it's being used wrongly. Um, so that's a good point. That too, that it's too simplistic to say they're just wrong, even though God does rebuke them for their approach. But a lot of what they're say, they're applying is stuff that you can you can verify from other parts of, of Scripture. Yeah, good point. Um, the first, uh, the first major theme is this word hebel, and I, I'm, I'm not, I don't like throwing around Greek and Hebrew terms. This is a very central concept in the book. It's a Hebrew word hebel, and it's the word that's translated in our ESV as vanity. Uh, ESV and ASB use vanity. Um, it's, it's one of the first words. It's the first word uh, after the the kind of title, you know, the words of the preacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Here's the message: vanity. Vanity of vanities. Verse 2, this flurry of five of them. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 30 verses in this book use this term. Um, it is clearly a central, maybe the central concept in the book. Um, often it's interpreted. You even heard it in the NIV I, I cited. Or I don't know if I said this. NIV says meaningless. Christian Standard Bible says absolute futility. And you hear that in some of those alternative translations. This idea, and it's often interpreted to mean meaningless. It's devoid of meaning. And if that's right, it seems to me that that kind of, that kind of disposes us toward that view that he's wrong. Um, this idea, we can, we can see why, if that's what, what Hebel means, it kind of does lend us to seeing that the body of the book is probably wrong because the author is this despairing nihilist who says nothing means anything. Why bother? So then uh, on, the, on that reading, the concluding two verses, fear God and keep his commandments is, is a is a contradiction of that, that message. Well, there is something that matters. Here's what matters. Um, however, others have pointed out that, that the word meaningless, meaningless is not the best way to render this word. Uh, the footnote, actually, in the ESV that I saw in the ESV, I don't know if every ESV uses, uses this footnote, but I think it's uh, in, in the, one, the one I was looking at. <laughs> I think nailed it. It says, the Hebrew term hebel translated vanity or vain 
refers concretely to a mist, vapor, or mere breath, and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive. And you see it used in the Bible this way, like uh, if you want to look on your own at Psalm 62.10, but a breath, it's translated breath there, and it's, it's kind of paralleled with the idea of being light, being insubstantial, um, uh, characterizing our lives that way, like our lives are light and, and insubstantial and fleeting, they're hebel. Uh, so it's fleeting and elusive, not meaningless. There, there is something, it's devoid of something, but that something isn't meaning. It's kind of solidity and permanence. One, one author, I, I like how he says this, modern author, he says, wait for a cold day, open your mouth wide and breathe out. Try to grab the cloud in your hands. That, proclaims Ecclesiastes, holds for all of life's joys. They all flicker and vanish, and one day death will take uh, will take from us and take us from whatever joys we have left. That, and it, is, it means breath. So that idea of like breathe in the winter and try to grab the, you know, the condensate, that, that, that really is kind of true to what the, the word even conveys that metaphorically. So uh, on this understanding, it really helps us to, to more easily see how the body of the book is not wrong. The preacher is pointing out a limited, not comprehensive, but true perspective on reality. And um, from this perspective, the world doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. That, that's what this rest of this opening poem is about in verses 2 to 11. It's all about the ongoing cyclical nature of the world that never seems to produce any gain. Um, you know, for instance, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it goes. Like the next day, it's the same thing over again. What was gained? You know, what was gained by this journey the sun went on? There was no kind of net benefit to all of it. Um, it, it is, the sun rose, but that, that was fleeting because it just goes back again, right? The circularity of everything. Uh, and so what is the perspective in which we see the fleeting and insubstantial nature of the world? That brings us to our second theme, which is under the sun. Before I get there, any thing I need to clarify or questions or push back about this idea of what vanity or hebel, what that means, what it doesn't mean? Yeah, Jeff. You're saying about, you know, how the sun comes up and it goes down, mm-hmm. and it's all accomplished. It's, it's, all how you look at that, the perspective of newness each day mm-hmm. is new. It's like a new start. So mm-hmm. it, you can look at it that way. Yes. It changes the complete structure of how you were thinking. Yes. What, what Jeff's mean. actually getting tapping into kind of the, the paradox at the heart of this whole book. And it's this is something to really sit with, and it, it's, it really takes a lot of meditation and thought, but... There's, on one perspective, there's this newness and goodness of every day of the sun. Like, oh, this is beautiful and good. The sun is warming the earth. And, but then you can step back more and say, but it's just going to go down again. You know, and it's like, what's being gained here? The plants that it's supplying are going to die. You know, every spring, we're like, it's so beautiful, it's so new. But then you can say, yeah, but in the fall, they're all going to die. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, there's different perspectives, right? There's, there's something good in a limited sense. But if you zoom out, you can see, but where is it going? You know, it kind of, it's all cyclical. That leads us to this under the sun is the perspective. This comes up many times. I have there in your, in your handout. And it's in verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This phrase is used 29 times in the book. And along with Hebel, it's kind of hand in hand. It's a very prominent theme, and it really fits in conceptually with Hebel. Because this is a perspective from which we see the vain and fleeting nature of our world. And under the sun is this metaphorical way of saying a view that's limited to the earth. It takes God and eternity out of frame. And it just says, what is this world on, on its own? 
And the book draws a lot of negative conclusions about under the sun that are accurate so far as that goes. But by the end of the book, the now familiar conclusion we've already talked about puts this whole under the sun perspective in its limited place by saying, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed, every evil deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the end of the book is pointing us to it's kind of popping the bubble of under the sun and saying, well, that isn't all that there is. Certain things about life only make sense in view of eternity. In the perspective of God and his relationship to us as creator and his coming judgment, um, it's in that view that a life of wisdom and the fear of the Lord does make sense and prove profitable. So we're kind of competing between these different perspectives. If you just view things in a limited earthly sense versus the more eternal above the sun perspective. So if we're looking at everything under the sun and we see kind of vanity of vanity, uh, what, 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 how does the world look to us? Uh, what, what are the conclusions that this draws us to under the sun? And there's really two prongs of, of what we see um, under the sun. The, f- the first one is your, your third theme here, is the acknowledge the limitations of wisdom. And this is... This is really the heart of what makes Ecclesiastes so challenging is because many passages there seem to exist in tension, some would say contradiction, with the broader stream of biblical wisdom that you find in mostly in Proverbs, but even other parts of Ecclesiastes, kind of more traditional down the middle uh, wisdom teaching. For instance, Proverbs teaches us, Proverbs 10.4, that patterns that generally lead to certain patterns of life generally lead to certain outcomes. Success and prosperity comes from diligence. It says... A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So usually diligence will lead to uh, prosperity. That is one true thread of reality. But then the preacher comes along and challenges this and says, but wait. He says in, in chapter 9, verse 11, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So Proverbs says, certain inputs will lead to certain outputs. And the preacher says, yeah, but there's, this, there's also this apparent randomness at work in the world. Uh, time and chance can easily nullify the, uh, the reaping that our wisdom is supposed to be sowing toward. Um, and that's true. You can work really hard, but certain things don't break for you right in the world, and, and it doesn't amount to anything. Uh, a, a passage a few verses later in, in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 9 does a great job of encapsulating this tension of wisdom. It says, um, well, would someone read, I don't have to read it all. Uh, would someone read 9 uh, verses 13 to 16? Volunteer. Maybe I do have to read it all. <laughs> Tyler, I, I see that hand. Thank you. Ecclesiastes, you said? Yeah, yeah. 13 to 16. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Mm. The 
highs and lows of wisdom. It's kind of Jeff's thing. Every day, every morning, the sun comes up and it warms the earth and it's beautiful and it's life-giving. In one perspective, yeah, that's great. That's a gain. But then then preacher says, yeah, but it's just going to go down again and get cold at night. It's the same thing. He says, oh, yes, there, there's a city in danger and kudos to this man, this poor wise man. He's mastered his proverbs. He figures out how to save the city and wisdom does pay off. But then this melancholy turn. Yet no one remembered that poor man. He's a hero today, but a generation later, no one in the town has heard of him. Did his wisdom profit? Well, in a sense, yes, but kind of in the long view under the sun, well, what, where did that really get, get us, right? What was gained? Um, there is a circularity to it all. Remember that opening poem in, in chapter one. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. There's this under the sun. It's sort of like, well, what's, what's, the, what's the real benefit of this wisdom? So there, that is the limitations of wisdom. And then the fourth major theme is uh, to enjoy this limited life for what it is. And so this whole analysis is leading us to this big paradox. And it's something that's, again, I've said it already, but it's, it's not something we just grasp right away. This is really something to meditate and chew on and kind of wrestle with how this all fits together. But the benefit is, or really, I think, God is providing us a very deep understanding of the world and, and a lot of, of, of wonderful insight into how to live in it with appropriate expectations. So wisdom pays off for a while, but then time and chance overtake our gains. Eventually you'll die, and whatever little empire you built during this life will eventually scatter to the four winds. Um, Yet, acknowledging those limitations, we find freedom to enjoy this limited life for the limited good that it really is. And this comes up several times. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So this idea, you could say, like, why do I get up and go to work every day only to come home and then just, you know, have to go to sleep so I get up? And, you know, you can get really disillusioned by the circularity of life and nothing's, nothing's going anywhere. And then, like, again, Jeff's perspective on the sun is like, well, every, but there's something to enjoy just in that every day. Just get up and go enjoy your work. And come home and enjoy your dinner when you're all hungry and, you know, you've worked a long day. There's that satisfaction of you, you did it. You know, enjoy it. Enjoy it for what it is. Acknowledging that, yeah, it's, in itself, it's not really going anywhere. But that's okay. Enjoy it for what it is. Uh, 8.15 does pretty much the same thing. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go, uh, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So eat and drink and be joyful throughout your, your days in this limited, you know, vain life under the sun. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11 tells us that God has uh, made, everything God has made possesses its own value in its own time and place. It says he has made everything beautiful in its time. In its time and place, there is, there is beauty, there is value to be enjoyed. But uh, the paradox is that we, we, we most fully enjoy it when we let go of ultimate expectations for it. Uh, when we realize, like, yes, there is a circularity to this. There is under the sun. This may not really get anywhere. That's okay. I can still enjoy each, each thing for what it is. Each day, each gift, it, it's beautiful and it's time. And we seek ultimate purpose above the sun, right? That's what the end of the book says. Like, fear God, keep his commandments. He'll bring everything to judgment. 
the under the sun, again, where finally our perspective gets lifted to kind of eternity. And we remember God and his future judgment and all the Bible supplies in those concepts, uh, future glory we share with Christ. So history is going somewhere and our lives are going somewhere. But um, what, what Ecclesiastes guards us against is this idea that is very natural to us that we, we're kind of building towards something in this life that's going to lead to some, some kind of like uh, sense of, of satisfaction and gain. That, um, and, and it comes up a few times too, I think in chapter 6, like, fine, you, you build all this wealth, you're wise and diligent, you build all this wealth, and then you die, and then it gets scattered to who knows who. You know, it's like, again, where's the ultimate gain in that? It, it, it can be very disillusioning, or you can just say, I guess that shouldn't, building towards something, a net gain under the sun just shouldn't be what's driving me. But I, I can just embrace the limited nature of, of the gifts God's given me. And while I'm fearing him, just waiting for, waiting for ultimate value to be found above the sun, so to speak. So that's my view, kind of how, how, it, how it wraps together. Any, uh, any, I didn't ask after the last couple of these major themes, any thoughts or questions about, yeah, Randy. As, as you were talking about the last verse, other verses were coming to my mind that throughout scripture that mm-hmm. talks about the value of the day. Mm-hmm. That that's what we should be concerned with. Is just worry about today, tomorrow's troubles will be yeah. And there's other ones that I can't recall, but I do remember there are verses that speak to the value of the day you're living. Jesus in Matthew six, yeah, let the days of trouble be sufficient for the day. Paradoxically, I would say the two days that are most important are this day and that day, right? The 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 great day, right? And so the and yeah. Isn't it interesting? Like the Bible would tell us, just be content with today. Be worried about today. God will take care of tomorrow. Um, and, but uh, by the way, do it all in view of that day. But what's really not that important is tomorrow and tomorrow's problems or the end of my life and what's, what will be gained by all my, my vain toil and all this. Yeah, so you're right. Yeah, John, do you have something? Um, yeah, I was just going to say, because it's, uh, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book mm-hmm. of the Bible. Um, it was instrumental in my conversion yeah. to Christ. Um, so it is not just the, like, the book that you only pull out when there's a funeral, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the central point, like the overarching, like a lot of this world without God, mm-hmm. there is like no point, mm-hmm. right? Like no one's going to remember us in a hundred years. No one's going to, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't remember the people a hundred years ago. Like a lot of what we value because of the shortness of our lives is fleeting. Yeah. The point is eternity. And yeah. that's where I think the arching point is pushing us to look yeah. at eternity. Yeah. Have modest, limited expectations of this life and, and w- put all the freight, you know, all the weight of our, our hopes and expectations on eternity. And then paradoxically, you know, you're, you're, you'll be okay with the, the cyclical and the rising and falling of, of fortunes in this life. John, you told me that a long time ago that Ecclesiastes was like instrumental in your conversion. And I remember being like, you understand it? <laughs> that was my first reaction. I was like, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, Garrett. All is vanity and nothing's worthless and the end is near. Like you can just give up and yeah. just resign yourself or... Like we're told in Proverbs, get wisdom, get insight, get mm-hmm. instruction, work hard, all of these things. It doesn't, I don't think it contradicts, I don't know if I'm saying this, I don't think mm-hmm. it, it contradicts those things. I think, conversely, all of those things are vanity and worthless. 
if it's not the right motives. Yeah. Because the motive to get insight, wisdom, instruction, work hard is not for your own edification, mm -hmm. but the edification of Christ. And that's, I think that's what Ecclesiastes ultimately is in conjunction yeah. with Proverbs. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're saying that's good. Ecclesiastes is not contradicting Proverbs. It's, I think it's putting Proverbs in its place. It's zooming out a little bit. Proverbs gives us all this, like, you want a good life? You know, be diligent. You want a good life? You know, use your tongue wisely. All this, which is true, but then one might say, like, oh, I'm going to master all this stuff and watch where I go. <laughs> and Ecclesiastes zooms out and says, hold on. Be, be guarded in what you think this is all going to amount to in this world. And really, it, yeah, it's sort of a, a choice to make of what, what really matters to us. Is it just building this little empire under the sun, or is it the eternal things, the glory of God? Which is not contradictory to Proverbs, but it is, it, it clarifies where to go with Proverbs, yeah, absolutely. Very good, yeah. Yeah, Gary. You know, and actually it is, and then I, you know, I think you people, you have to learn how to read Ecclesiastes. You have to learn, like I do, that you just focus on on a verse like this, that uh, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. Now, this is why I like the New American Standard. I did enjoy my work, you know, my time of work. I really did. I had a great career. But see, now New American Standard says, and I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. Uh, so I use that as an excuse. <laughs> a lot of times we hear the pastor, he'll preach about, well, what are the other gods that you have that are in, that are impacting you and you're not giving true, mm -hmm. you know, and you start feeling guilty about all the wonderful things you enjoy. See, well, now I got biblical <laughs> confirmation that I can enjoy my fishing. Yeah. So if you guys learn how to read Ecclesiastes, <laughs> so you can enjoy all these wonderful things that you do. So, yeah, so tongue-in-cheek. But, but there's, but some there's great messages in here, there's, and as John yeah. says. It's a, it, to me, I love well, again, there's some, I know you're kind of kidding, but there is some truth in that, you know, again, biblical truth intention, right? We, we can say, watch out for idols, watch out for what has your heart, but we could take that so far that we can't enjoy anything creaturely. And Ecclesiastes is like, wait, <laughs> in its limited place, if our hearts are devoted to the Lord, he does give us these things. So, and you're kind of teasing, but kind of, there, there is actually a lot of good guardrail there. Um, I want to close by on this by recommending this little book it's called Living Life Backward by David Gibson it's a series of sermons he did on Ecclesiastes it doesn't cover all the book he skips over a few chapters um, but the, the subtitle is How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End and I, I found it very helpful both from understanding the book and just life and thought well, this was the first thing I read that helped me go wow Ecclesiastes is really helpful actually I can see how it's helpful um, so highly recommend it um David Gibson, Living Life Backward. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, at some point, and I read it, and it's, it is great. It's well worth reading. Good, good. Thanks, John, for that. Good. Let's move on and talk about Song of Songs. If you have anything about Ecclesiastes that you want to talk to me about, of course, feel free to do so another time. But moving on, um, Song of Songs, the next book, it has an internal title. In verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And you'll hear it called the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, which is that that construction is a Hebrew way of saying a superlative, the greatest of all songs, like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Song of Songs. Um, the Puritans would call it Canticle of Canticles, because that's the Latin for song. Right? If you ever read a Puritan, they say Canticles. Don't worry, it's, it's a book in the Bible. Um, the traditional view, again, ascribes authorship to Solomon. That's probably what 
which is Solomon's means in verse 1. A little bit of ambiguity that it could mean it's for him or about him. Probably means by him. He appears as one of the lovers in the book's poetry. Um, we, we read about in First Kings 4.32 that he, in addition to his voluminous proverbs, he wrote 1,005 songs. So uh, this seems to be maybe, again, his greatest hit uh, song. And um, like Ecclesiastes, our reading of this book will depend greatly on a couple of major kind of forks in the road at the, at the front end. How do we take what's, what's going on from the outset? The two big questions, this time there are two big questions. The first one is, is there an implied storyline underneath the song? And the second is, is it referring mainly, this is Chin Wei's question, mainly to human marriage or exclusively to a human marriage, or is it speaking allegorically of Christ and the church? That's a big historical question that, that's important. So the first we're going to talk about is, is there an underlying narrative, and if, if so, what? So as soon as you begin reading the book, you can see that two characters are singing to each other. And our Bibles, by the way, this is not part of the original text. This is a translation choice for, for clarity, but it is an interpretive choice that they mark it with these titles. She, like who's, say, who's talking? She, others, she, he. Um, these are, this is who's talking. Now, they're drawing from the pronouns, right? Like when, when it says, oh, he's so great. You know, okay, this is the, this is the she talking, right? Like, so it's understandable where they're getting these from. But um, there's what's kind of implied is that there's, it's like an opera. It's like this dramatic plot that's, be, that's progressing from start to finish through the means of this song. And uh, so then we ask, well, what's the story? What's the story happening with this couple, like f- starting from when they fall in love to, you know, through their wedding and, and on? And um, many have been suggested. Uh, you have some that give you a two-character drama between Solomon and the woman. Others have suggested it's a three-character. It's a love triangle. So Solomon's actually the antagonist. And there's this lowly shepherd who's the protagonist, and they're kind of vying for the woman. Um, others have rejected that kind of narrative approach altogether and just said it's just a collection of poetry, a love poetry. It's just a, you know, an album of love songs, so to speak. A bunch of portraits, uh, loosely connected snapshots. And um, I, I can't give you a firm answer on this. I, uh, I'm not sure I would reject any sense of an implied narrative moving through, but I, I can sympathize with that latter view just because if you, um, if you read people's reconstruction of what they think the story is, it can get really detailed and really speculative very quickly. And um, I, what, the advice I would give on this is three things. One is maybe find a couple of good commentaries, good solid commentaries, and just walk through the text with them. If, if you want to engage this book closely, Walk through the text with them and ask, do they seem to be offering a plausible explanation of what's going on in the text? Like, as they say, and then this happens, you know, they have a fight, and then this happens. And you're like, oh, yeah, that kind of seems like that's what's being implied there. Um, the second piece of advice is be wary as the reconstructions get more and more detailed and as the, uh, the, uh, the interpreter is supplying more and more kind of story from outside the text. And I've read some of these where it's like, ah, there's so much detail and twisting and turning. Like, this explains this verse, and this explains that verse. And it's like, are we really supposed to be able to reconstruct? Is this really what's being implied by the text? It seems general kind of wisdom thing is that simpler explanations are better. It gets really hard to, uh, to, to basically verify, you know, that these really intricate um, reconstructions of the narrative. And I would just say, do what these, you know, do what the translators do. Be, read with sensitivity to the, narr- the, the changes in pronouns 
that is a question you should be asking. Who's talking? Who seems to be talking to whom? Is it the woman? Is it the man? Is it a, there's another group, like an audience, like a chorus, and they say, oh, they'll talk about the two, uh, or, or one of the characters will talk to them. Um, like, we'll say, hey, y'all, isn't, you know, like talk about the other lover to the group. So just be, be sensitive to those dynamics and, and try to ask, like, what's, what, and that'll help us guide us in seeing kind of movement. If there's any action, kind of movement through the action or just kind of shifts between different sections of poetry. Um, does that make sense, that whole kind of question of, or any thoughts or questions about that, um, about the kind of, is there a story being told here? There are some moments, like it looks like um, from chapter 3, verse 6 through 5-1, that whole section does seem to be sort of a wedding narrative where like Solomon is coming for the wedding and then they have this moment of enjoying each other's, you know, adoring each other's loveliness. And then we'll talk in a moment, but 5-1 is like they consummate their marriage. That seems to be a pretty clear kind of moment, that a kind of moment of action. Um, so you might just build on that. Like, are there other, are there other kind of actions that, that seem to be happening clearly enough? But takes careful reading and, and consideration. The other big question is this, this matter of, is it merely about human marriage or Christ in the church? Is it also typifying Christ in the church? Um, up until the 19th century, it was virtually universal throughout church history to interpret the Song of Songs as an allegory of Christ's relationship with his church. And uh, this move, oversimplify, of course, with this discussion, but this move is rooted in what Paul says about marriage in, in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, and he's quoting there from Genesis 2. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the important part. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. What is the profound mystery that refers to Christ in the church? What is Paul saying? It, he says, this is a profound mystery, and it refers to Christ in the church. What is the this? Marriage. It's the marriage. He just said, like, the two become one. That's marriage. That's what marriage is. And he says, this is a profound mystery, and it refers to Christ in the church. So marriage refers as an institution. Um, it's an earthly institution that we experience in our material human existence, but more profoundly, it is a symbol that participates in a greater heavenly reality, which is Christ and his eternal love and union with his church. Um, up until the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, that was pretty much the, I think, virtually unanimous view. Then certain philosophical shifts that occur that kind of dispose Christians toward thinking more of the Bible in terms of its human aspect, the human author, human audience historically, and kind of the extent of their likely understanding. What would they have been thinking? and understanding in writing or reading this book and kind of limiting meaning to that. And as a result of that, the song came to be regarded simply as a poetic celebration of the intimacy of human marriage. Now, what should we say to this? With some qualifications I'm about to make that are important, I contend the old guys were right. Um, and it's not, and in saying that, it's not to say that Song of Songs is not about human marriage because it absolutely is. But the, the New Testament authors make so emphatically clear, and I have references there in your handout to many, many places we get this from. In addition to just the limited thing about marriage in Ephesians 5, the whole biblical storyline centers on the coming and redemption of Christ. And uh, in that view, that's, that's kind of the background in which we read Ephesians 5 and say, oh yes, in that view, 
marriage is about something bigger. And so in that view, Ephesians 5 would, would point us. What I would say is, yes, the song is about marriage, but yes, marriage is about Christ and the church. So in speaking about marriage, of course the song is also referring to Christ and his church. Now having said that, I will warn against the, some of the overly intricate and speculative readings that you'll find in church history. Um, you'll read some old interpreters that go some wild places with how they interpret all the, all the elements and, and all the imagery uh, allegorically. The, the Old Testament is full of types and shadows of Christ, but uh, the wisest interpreters of our time have recognized that our reading of all these figures should be regulated by the overall story of the Bible, the major doctrinal teaching of the Bible. So you don't find in some kind of type and shadow and allegory some some teaching that's like really exotic relative to what the rest of the Bible is saying. It's, it's reinforcing what the rest of the Bible is doing. So what I, and they call this concept the rule of faith. There's sort of this, this mainstream of what the Bible is saying, the doctrinal content of the Bible, and we should always let that regulate our, our interpretation of individual passages. So um, let me give you an example of how, what, what I would say is consider how what this book is saying is putting into living color what the Bible teaches elsewhere about Christ and his mutual love with his church. So an example is is chapter 1, verse 13. The woman says, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now some interpreters have asked, well, what do her breasts represent, right? And and some early early interpreters said, they're the Old and New Testaments, and the sachet of myrrh is Christ. um, That seems a little hard to defend, a little speculative. How do we know if that's true? Um, I believe a better approach and maybe more consistent. Again, uh, the human authorial intent is important. We don't want to ditch it. We just want to say what God intends in the scope of the whole canon may be, may be broader. So what I would say is meditate on the picture that is being painted here. A woman who has a pouch of fragrance on her chest, perhaps it's on a necklace. And what does that do? Throughout the day it's emitting this wonderful fragrance that kind of wafts up into her nose and it just fills her senses with this sense of pleasure. And what she's saying to him is, you are that to me. My relationship with you is this wonderful fountain of delight that's kind of always wafting up into my senses throughout the day. And it, it colors everything with pleasure. It colors everything with a sense of goodness. Isn't it beautiful when a human bride feels that way about her husband? Uh, maybe wives among us. Have you ever felt that way about your husband? Um, more profoundly, though, isn't it beautiful when the church goes about our lives keeping Christ near to our hearts and this kind of constant enjoyment. It's like a delightful fragrance to be, we heard last Sunday about being heavenly minded from Colossians three to have our mind uh, fixed on things above where Christ is. And, and our life is hidden with Christ and God. Doesn't that kind of follow us? If we're doing that kind of follows us through our day and fills our lives with this sense of goodness and pleasure. Do you see that what I'm doing is there? I'm trying to constrain the figurative reading by what we clearly know from elsewhere in scripture. Then we're not going to find something radically new uh, but it's sort of image imagery reinforcing what what we learn elsewhere any thoughts or questions about that i know this is a conversation and you may not agree with me on this overall approach uh but but does anyone have any questions or thoughts or push back on on these things interpretive approach yeah jason mm-hmm Mm-hmm. 
scheme of things, it's a picture, and we can extrapolate from that picture about what our relationship with Christ and the intimacy and the fellowship and the togetherness and the delight that we have with him. Or are you, yes. or are you advocating, kind of going through and saying, okay, well, you know, verse 13, um, this has an implication for how we ought to feel about Jesus. Like, are you, I guess, wanting us or suggesting we read this with some figurative element or kind of that first thing where it's really more the implication of human yeah, yeah. The the terminology is implications versus meaning. I mean, I think. Yeah, I, I I don't know exactly how, I would parse out the language in terms of, uh, what I would. Uh, what I'd say is this, that the divine intended meaning has the whole canon in view, and has the broader meaning of marriage in view. So it's appropriate to say, God means to tell us something here. God, part of the meaning here is what what, Christ and the church relationship but that's not to the exclusion of human marriage because again human marriage is about christ in the church does that help yeah and maybe we could interact more later but yeah yeah I, I think it's 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 yeah we don't just say it means this but also we can we can then secondarily infer i think we should say god is meaning to tell us about christ in his church yeah randy and then yeah, christina uh, you're talking about uh, human marriage is representing church. I'm thinking about the text that you just read. In, in our right relationship, marriage relationship, there's fulfillment, satisfaction, pleasure, loyalty, mm-hmm. desire, all those things that should be applied between Christ and the church. Yes, yes. We're going to get into some of that. And that's, that's some of the beautiful teaching of this book is the putting meat on the bones of what this relationship looks like. And you said loyalty, pleasure, yeah, those are wonderful elements. Yeah, Christina. I was going to say that I think that Commonly, like, I feel like at least in the you know last generation of, mm-hmm. of the church, we kind of struggle with Song of Solomon as like mm-hmm. you know, is that the naughty book that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, um, you know like uh, and and Chinway um, said who's allowed to read it yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I think that there is a degree where it's like it's it's you know like it's a beautiful mm-hmm. book that yes uh, encourages us to yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Christina, you're right that you know, and there, there's a lot more elements at play here. But you know, one blind spot that was an issue in I wouldn't say uniformly in the early church is sometimes overplayed. But there was a tendency to downplay the goodness of physical and material, and that played into I think some of the quickness to move away from that kind of reading. I don't think it's an either or. I think we, yeah, I think we should. I mean, we should say, like, God is endorsing this. It, it, it resounds to a greater theme, to a greater kind of meaning. But in itself, it is good and beautiful. It's endorsed by God. And that's, if that's something that's been recovered in more recent generations, let's say, amen. Unfortunately, sometimes the Christological allegory has been, has been replaced by erotic allegory where it turns into this very detailed, and I'm going to talk in a moment about this very detailed X-rated, and every verse is a picture, you know, and and that is very misguided. And um, this is for every, every, this is for the church. I mean, scripture is meant for the church, for reading, preaching, and it's for everybody of every age. So 
it's very artful, the depictions of, of it, sexual intimacy. Yeah, Jason, you have the last word, and then, unless I disagree with you. <laughs> I think so. I think it takes the stress off of how could how could we look be looking to Solomon as an example? It takes the stress off of it again. And I said this about Solomon. Like ultimately, Christian, what does Solomon have to do with you? What he has to do with you is Christ. <laughs> I mean, that is the inter- that is the applicational key for us as Christians. This is ours in Christ. Solomon is an anticipation of Christ, a very flawed one. David was an anticipation of Christ, a very flawed one. We don't just read, "What did David do? Let me do it." That's not. Primarily, that's not how the Bible teaches us. It teaches us, how is David pointing to Christ? And in Christ, what does that mean for us? And I would say the same. Solomon is, it's not his life that's like the model here. It's the text is pointing us to something greater. And his life itself is almost incidental to that. And that is one of the struggles of the book. Is like, how, how given what we know in First Kings, how could we be holding him up as a model? That's why some people like that love triangle where it's like he's the bad guy and he's trying to, anyway. Saying, "Hey, in this in that analogy, analogy, Solomon is standing for Christ in the context of what is probably an adulterous relationship." Yeah, I would just say, "Don't worry about Solomon. <laughs> worry about the text." You know what I mean? Like, like uh, that's it. That what we have, what we have is the text. And again, I, I think there's been a modern push toward recovering historical background, which has its value, but it can dangerously pull us into like. We're, we don't have to be we don't have to be wholesale like what is Solomon thinking when he writes this and he wasn't he such a sinner it's like that's what we have is a text let's just read the text in the context of the whole Bible and yeah there are tensions there but I think that it, it just maybe the focus should be on what what's the beauty of this thing that he's extolling even if his own life falls far short of it yeah well moving on just for the sake of time I love these discussions this is good this is really good thinking together um Themes, uh, major themes in the book. Uh, one of them is affirmation of godly sexuality. I said that there's sort of a wedding sequence that ends with a consummation in 5.1. And it's, so he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with milk. And the other you know, cheering section says, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And all throughout the book, this, this book celebrates the goodness of sexuality um, as God's design for marriage, the goodness of sexual pleasure as part of God's design for marriage. And it always does so with this artfully discreet language. As I said, it's, it's, for, every, it's for the whole audience, right? This example is a really good and artfully euphemistic, but we know what's going on. We, 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 don't need every, uh, we don't need the picture painted explicitly. So I would say we should, there are some modern approaches that are just so crass and X-rated, and that's not what this book is trying to do. Um, Nevertheless, sex is good. That's a huge o- overarching message. The pleasure of intimacy is God's good gift within marriage. It is godly and wise to delight in and partake in. And again, it, it resonates to a greater pleasure and a greater relationship. If, if, if physical intimacy in husband and wife is so wonderful, what is that telling us about heavenly bliss in the, you know, the blessed vision of God in, in Christ in heaven? It's like, how good is that going to be? Is definitely the, the picture that's pointing to. Um, the second major theme is sexual purity. As good as uh, sexual intimacy is, Song of Songs always bounds it within the God-given confines of marriage. So you have a few times this refrain 
where the, the woman is warning her, her audience, unmarried uh, uh, virgins of Jerusalem, uh, about the, the, the timeliness of tapping into these powerful forces of, of love and intimacy. She says, I adjure you in 8.4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And what's implied there is, is marriage. There's a context. These are, these are powerful, attractive forces at work. And in the right time and place, they are beautiful and godly and good. But be careful not to play with fire because of how powerful God made these things to be for our good. But outside of the God-given confines, they're really dangerous. So there's a warning of, like, be careful. You're playing with a powerful force here. One author writes, um, patience and purity before passion and pleasure is what that wisdom admonition instructs. A lot of Pete, that's a good preacher right there. Patience and purity before passion and pleasure. And that is part of the comprehensive message of the book. It's not just go wild, you know. It's it, within the, the, the confines, the God-given boundaries of marriage. The third major theme is the security and delight of marital love. Um, there is a lot more to their relationship than sex. This is one of my critiques of the kind of erotic allegory. Is like everything's about sex. No, it, it, it embeds, it's like intimacy is there, but it's embedded in a broader covenant love between a husband and wife. That's, that's the, 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 the setting in which that intimacy occurs. And there's this powerful bond of security and commitment in their marriage that only inflames further their passion for each other. Um, this is probably before they're married, but it's anticipating marriage. In 2.16, she says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Um, and this covenant language of mutual possession, he is mine, and I am his. This, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you read a lot of the Old Testament, you go, it's firing off. Uh, signals you're going, oh, this is covenant language. This is how we hear God talking to his people about his covenant, which we enjoy that in the new covenant of Christ. It says to Israel, you'll be mine, I'll be, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. It's the same kind of covenant love and marriage saying, he is mine, I am his. And that unbreakable bond is the context in which intimate love flourishes. Um, there's, there's a kind of qualitative relationship that arises from that unbreakable bond. And as it is, again, as it is in Christ's love for his church, he'll never leave or forsake us. So should it be in every human marriage that, that this, this secure commitment to one another creates, gives space for passion to arise. So there's security and delight, knowing oneself loved. Uh, of course, all these categories are not exclusive and separate, right? They all, they all um, overlap greatly. The, the fourth theme uh, I want to point, before I do, does any, any pushback or thoughts about these, these themes we've looked at so far. Affirmation of godly sexuality and sexual purity, security. Yeah? Push back. There's just more scriptures coming to my mind. Yeah, yeah. talking. Yeah, it gets kind of crowded. But <laughs> I'll talk less, Randy. I'd like to think more. <laughs> but getting back to the analogy of marriage, God accuses Israel of committing adultery, yeah. of prostituting themselves to other gods or yeah. idols. And um, there's another thought that just flew out the other end. Um, I can't remember what it was, but it's consistent throughout. Oh, oh, here's what it was. Yeah. God instructed one of his prophets to go and marry a prostitute yeah. to show Israel what yeah. they have done. Yeah, Jose. Yeah, so you're right. There is a there's a pretty prominent motif in the prophets of, of this, this metaphor of marriage. What's interesting is that when God uses this marriage imagery with Israel, it's always negative in the prophets. It's always to show what an adulteress they are and how unconscionable their spiritual adultery is. Someone I read pointed out, it's interesting, 
there, the, this would be the, um, it, insofar as it refers to God and his people, this would be the Old Testament's one kind of positive use of the marriage metaphor for, for God and his people. It's kind of interesting. But you're right, there's, that comes up a lot in this, uh, which is, again, another contextual clue for how it's, how it's being intended, even by the original author, potentially, um, that there's a sense of God and his people that's being, that's being intended here. Um, yeah. The fourth theme uh, I, I'm calling the perfecting slant of love's gaze. And that you may be like, what on earth does that mean? We'll get there and explain it. Um, one beautiful feature of this book is how the lovers look at each other with very selective glasses. Um, they extol each other's qualities in superlative terms. There are long swaths where they do this. You know, if you've read it, where it's like, your neck is ivory, you know, and, and, and all these. Uh, there's a technical term for this, I, I don't know what it is, but where you go on and talk, like compare all these body parts to beautiful things. But I, I love, uh, it's in the middle of one of those sections that uh, the, the man says to the woman, this is part of their wedding sequence. In 4-7, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, married people know. Do I have to finish my sentence? As time wears on, <laughs> as time wears on, believe it or not, unmarried people, listen up. You probably didn't know this. As time wears on, we're going to be tempted. We're going to be faced with a choice of what lens to look at our spouse through. Believe it or not, eventually you will find some flaws in your spouse. And we might be tempted to look at our spouse through an exacting and critical lens. And through this lens, our spouse's faults and sins will loom so large that they can dominate the picture we have of them. And it can become all we see. But there's another option, and it's what I'm calling the perfecting slant of love's gaze. And what that means is love chooses to see loveliness in the beloved. Is it factually true that anyone's spouse is altogether flawless and beautiful? No, it's not factually true. That's not the point. This is poetry. That's the beauty about poetry. There's a certain way of seeing things that magnifies the loveliness of the beloved. And this is one area where seeing the ultimate referent of Christ in the church, in my judgment and even my experience in reading this book, is so helpful. Is if you read this and imagine Jesus talking to his church this way. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. It is crazy to think of Jesus talking to us that way. I'm like, Jesus, how could you say that about us? How could you see us that way with all of our sins and weaknesses? Not only knowing my own heart, but all of y'all in this local church, but even the church more broadly. And we're a good church. I mean, there's some really bad ones out, you know. And going, how could you say that? But here's the kicker. It's... Uh, no, wait, sorry, I'm skipping ahead of myself. He does see us that way. And it's not because of how lovely we are objectively, but because of how powerful his love is. Which, by the way, remember Ephesians 5 tells us that's a love that washes and sanctifies us, seeing us as beautiful in order to make us beautiful. That's what Christ does. Through his death for us, through his spirit, sanctifying, washing. So, so this, is, this is really the, the payoff here, is that it's only in knowing ourselves loved by Christ this way and going, wow, being floored by that. I can't believe Jesus can say that about us. That is the power to see your spouse that way, to see your spouse through that lens. Now, of course, that's not the whole story. This is wisdom literature. It's threads of reality. We don't ignore our spouse's sins. There's a time for confrontation. There's a time for cleansing. 
But isn't it beautiful in, when a marriage is dominated by this kind of Christ-like perspective that chooses to see loveliness in the beloved? And I would say, if you're married and that's ever a struggle for you, pray and even spend some time meditating on this book, reading and saying, not to oversimplify everything, of, uh, you know, with all I've just said about interpreting it, but listening kind of for the voice of Jesus talking to his church as the bridegroom and, and being, you'll be blown away by the way he talks and go, and if, yeah, and if, uh, I'll just say this, if you don't think this is about Christ and the church, okay, this is a, this is an ideal human marriage. Is Christ a worse lover than an ideal human husband? Like, no matter what, you're faced with the point of saying, Christ is even better than this. Christ is at least as good as whatever ideal Solomon or whatever. So we're faced with this picture of, this is what love looks like. This is how love sees the beloved. And pray through that. It it will change your, God will change your your perspective on your spouse over time. Um, The fifth theme is Edenic beauty and bounty. This whole book, I love this, this is poetry, imagery, right? We talked about poetry is all about parallels and imagery. It's suffused with these references to gardens and pastoral imagery. We have vineyards, apple trees, spices, lilies, flowing water. Very much that's the, the kind of setting in which all this takes place. I have some references in there for you. Uh, but not only does this kind of language stir emotion, it creates pictures, which is the evocative kind of pictorial nature of poetry. It, 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 we're imagining a couple in a certain setting, that's what it's supposed to do. But also in the context, again, of the biblical canon, it's evoking memories of Eden. It's evoking memories of a garden, a lost paradise, of perfect love between a husband and a wife and between man and God, where sin came in and, um, and ruptured the relationship, both, both of those relationships very badly. Um, and so what we're seeing is that covenant love is a realm that restores and exceeds what was lost in the garden. That's what's implicitly being communicated by all this garden imagery in the context of the whole Bible. There's something heavenly about this love. Because remember, where the whole Bible story is going is the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22 is very Edenic. There's a tree of life showing up in the New Jerusalem. There's all, there's all these like Eden's things popping up at the end of the Bible in the new creation. And so what Song of Songs is doing is it's pointing us forward and saying, ah, there's a kind of love that's like heaven on earth. It's anticipating the restoration and exceeding of what was lost at Eden, again, between a man and his wife, but more profoundly between God and man, between Christ and man. And um, again, every human marriage anticipates this in a shadowy and imperfect way. But of Jesus' love we sing in the hymn, uh, "'Tis a heaven of heavens to me," the song, "'Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus.'" We say, "'Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee." Um, those are some of the major themes. That's kind of our treatment of Song of Songs. Any um, any comments or questions about what we've covered? Yeah. yeah. So I hope I hope in coming away um, from this study, I hope you're motivated and somewhat equipped to read these books more profitably and and go. I want to get in there and and see more of this in both of these books. <laughs> they're definitely on very different gears in terms of what they're doing. But they're both important. I, I want to remind you in closing what we said last week about the wisdom literature kind of as a whole, that Proverbs is the hub of the wheel, teaching us kind of the normal patterns of cause and effect and means and ends, sowing and reaping, that enable us to understand God's world and live well under him in it. And then the other wisdom books complement that, that basic picture. Uh, so Job teaches us that loss and suffering 
aren't always explainable by our wisdom and our folly and our righteousness and our unrighteousness because God's mysterious sovereignty and his purposes that are beyond us is reigning over all. And then today we've seen that Ecclesiastes points out the limited value of that Proverbs-type wisdom. Put it in its place. Yes, it's good to know how diligence and money and relationships and speech and all these things work, but if life under the sun is all there is, what is the ultimate use of all that? It only makes the, the, the best sense in view of above the sun, in view of eternity. Um, and it's only in view of our death, actually, and eternity that living uh, wisely in the fear of the Lord shows its true profit. And then Song of Songs teaches us that as useful as those rational kind of cause and effect wisdom things are, there's also a good place in God's world for intoxicating delight. That's what this poetry communicates to us. Just head over heels, intoxication. And namely, that's the holy bonds of covenant uh, marriage, which speak of an even greater love, an even greater covenant love that we know in Christ. So uh, that's kind of the wisdom literature in a nutshell, and that concludes uh, today's lesson. If you want to talk to me about any of these things afterward or ask questions, I would welcome interaction. But let me close this in prayer. Um, once we might actually be done on time. Okay, let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for speaking these life-giving words to us. Thank you for warning us about limitations of this life and, and setting our expectations on eternity. We pray that we would be a people who walk in wisdom and seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, but with realistic expectations about the limitations of this life and our hearts really fixed on the, the day to come. And in that way, Lord, help us to enjoy your gifts as not ultimate but as good and help us to be people who are always living in light of the end. And uh, we also pray that we would study and that we would meditate and more deeply saturate our hearts in the, the love of Christ for his people. That we read about um, in the Gospels, we read about in the Epistles, but in some beautiful poetic ways. There's so much meat being put on the bone here in this book, Song of Songs. We pray that we would, we would see that and we would glory in it and that we would be instructed in our, in our own marriages about what, what it ought to look like to delight in each other um, as, as is fitting in this relationship, as is pleasing to you. We pray that our marriages in this church, you continue to give grace to each husband and each wife to lean in toward each other as both are looking to you and to please use this uh, to beautify and purify our lives for your glory. For singles, we pray that you would help them to better appreciate marriage, both the great marriage uh, of Christ and his church, but also human marriage in its limited sense, to, to have a high regard for it and to understand it, to be encouragers of others who are married. We pray all this and more um, that you would be pleased to do through your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.